Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of the All In for Citrus podcast. A great show today. A couple really good updates on research involving water and nutrient management and uh, RNA science that's helping to control Asian citrus psyllids. We'll get to that in just a minute, but we will start as we always do with Dr. Michael Rogers. Dr. Rogers, thanks for taking some time. Uh, Thank you, Taylor. We're going to talk about uh, several events. Uh, What we plan to talk about has changed over the last couple of days as we've had some updates. Uh, You've had some meetings and and good news on some stuff coming up, the the first of which is just a few weeks away, right? Uh, Yes, we actually, um, in in April, April the 6th is going to be one of our first uh, meetings uh, upcoming meetings taking place. And this meeting, it's the uh, Florida Citrus Growers Institute that is put on every year by our citrus extension agents. Um, last year it was done virtually and this year it will be done virtually again. Um, so, and hopefully this will be the last time we do it virtually, but it is definitely going to be done again, virtually again this year. Um, but April 6th, and it's going to be online from 8:30 AM till noon is the time frame that this is running. And um, if, if folks want to uh, find out more information, I, I would I would say that this the the content the um, sessions for this particular um, institute are are mainly pest management focused. Um, we've got a lot of work uh, that's going to be or, you know presentations talking about um, spray guidelines, biocontrol for psyllids, um, young tree pest management, uh, updates on leadic mealybug and. Um, and also weed management, for example, uh, you know, it's the latest on, on weed management research. So um, if folks want to register for that, uh, you can go to the Citrus Agents website. And, and that, that website is citrusagents.ifis.ufl.edu. Um, and there's links to, to sign up for these, these meetings, um, you know, this meeting and the other OJ breaks. There's several that are still taking place around the state virtually. And you can go there and sign up for those. Very good. Uh, is there any plans of uh, recording that content and uh, putting it up for viewing after? Yes, I think we, we always get those uh, put onto the website later on. There's usually a, a little delay in that. Um, and I'm not sure how long it will be after the event before you can actually go back and review them again. Um, but, uh, but we encourage everybody, you know, if you want to see it for the first time and interact with folks, it's a, it's a, it's a you know, that, that interactive webinar. Again, starts April 6th from 8.30 a.m. till noon. Very good. That's virtual. Uh, there's two other ones. Exciting news. Going to be in person. One in May. Uh, we'll talk about the big one in August, but one in May. What's that one? Yeah, so in May, uh, May 12th through 13th, this is the rescheduled date for the Florida Citrus Show that takes place in Fort Pierce every year. And everybody remembers this was scheduled for the beginning of the year, but we had to postpone that because of of the situation, the pandemic situation. But, you know, the way things are looking out there, I, th- I'm, I think we're all very optimistic that this is going to go forward May 12th through 13th in Fort Pierce in-person event. And they've, uh, Johnny Ferrarezzi and the, and the committee that's working on organizing that, that meeting have done a really good job of putting together a nice program. And, uh, you know, I hope that uh, everybody's going to be able to get out and, and participate in that. Some of the um, topics, I mean, just just general categories of topics that they're talking about. There'll be a um, some more uh, discussion on new varieties. There'll be horticultural management practices, um, pest and disease management, 
and also a, a session on new technologies, things like artificial intelligence. So it should be a really good lineup of speakers. And again, probably one of the first chances for folks to get back together in person, um, you know, uh, for, a, for a larger industry event. And again, that's May 12th through 13th in Fort Pierce. Okay, and the the other big one um, coming up in August is the uh, annual Citrus Expo. Good news on this. You guys just had your first planning meeting. Yes, and uh, we're excited. Uh, You know, last year we did Citrus Expo um, virtually. And, you know, I think for a virtual meeting it went well, but it's not the same doing it virtual as in person. And this is the largest um, industry event of the year for us. And we are excited um, that all indications are we're going to be able to do this in person. And there's going to be very little, you know, changes to how it's done from the past. I mean, there will be a few things that will happen in the in the meeting rooms, for example. Maybe the chairs spaced a little wider to help social distance a little bit more. But by and large, you know, the meeting is going to be uh, uh, fairly close to normal, we hope, as long as things don't get worse in our state. Um and so I think we're all very optimistic that it's going to be a, uh, a great in-person meeting for us uh, for Citrus Expo. Right now, we're in the process of planning the, uh, the agenda of, of talks. And um, obviously, we've got lots of vendors that are lined up that are eager to get there and put their, their uh, products on the trade floor for folks to have a look at and interact with. And again, those dates are August 18th through 19th at the Lee Civic Center in uh, Fort North Fort Myers. And of course, as we get closer to time, we'll be we'll have probably be airing a lot of um, information and, and interviews with folks who uh, will be presenting at that that expo to give you previews of of those presentations. But just wanted to you know mention it now just to get it on everybody's calendar. You know, August eighteenth and nineteenth. Uh, save those dates. Yeah, uh, you know, vaccines are rolling out. We're getting a little bit more back to quote unquote normal. Um, I think we will see safety precautions still at some of these live events. Um, we will need to continue that even into August. But, you know, we're, we're slowly getting there. And, and I think there's a there's a rejuvenated uh, sense of energy, basically, that everybody has. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we've seen the numbers coming down in Florida. I mean, it is spring break time right now. And I'm sure that there might be we might have see some consequences of a lot of people coming to Florida in spring break. But, you know, overall, I think that we're heading in the right direction and we're very optimistic we're going to be able to do all this stuff in person. And, and, and you know, the university is making plans for fall, um, the start of fall semester. Um, if things continue going like they are, we expect to return to normal for the University of Florida students and all of our activities beginning, you know, fall semester of, of 2021. And um, a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, um, we've been able to get uh, students and all university employees at all universities throughout the state of Florida have been able to start receiving vaccines. And um, that's been facilitated through the FEMA um, pop up sites around the state. Uh, The federal the federal vaccination program is is targeting um, university employees and students. So it's allowing us to get vaccinated. And just this past week um, here at the CRC, we had a very large number of folks were able to get vaccinated through the FEMA program. And, you know, it's just a you can see the sense of relief on people's faces. I mean, um, to know that, you know, we're going to be able to get back to normal, you know, probably a lot sooner than then to fall before fall semester at UF. Um, you know, it may be, you know, very early summer where you see things start to return more to normal here uh, with the number of people getting vaccinated. So it's 
It, it's exciting times. Um, you know, we, we kind of, you know, we feel like we could see the light at the end of the tunnel. I know a lot of people feel that way. And so um, we're very optimistic, very excited. And, and we look forward to seeing everybody we haven't seen in person you know, over the past year. Yeah, absolutely. And again, uh, it's back, the Citrus Expo, August 18th and 19th. Also, the Vegetable and Specialty Crop Expo happens at the same time. You can find all the information at citrusexpo.net. Dr. Michael Rogers, thank you so much for the update. All right, thank you, Taylor. We're now going to go to some very interesting research from Associate Professor of Plant Pathology, Dr. Nabil Kalini. Uh, Dr. Kalini, first of all, uh, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. So we're going to talk about some really interesting research, which is uh, controlling uh, the vector, which is what your research is really based on. Um, before we get into the details of how you guys are controlling vectors, in this case, the Asian citrus psyllid, we want to talk about RNA interference, RNAi. Um, understanding what that is and, and how we use that. Talk a little bit about that. RNA interference, uh, uh, it's actually a technology has been developed to stop or reduce the uh, expression of uh, some gene. By uh, reducing the expression of certain gene, we actually lose the phenotype. For example, if we target uh, color development in insect and we target a major gene there by RNAi, by RNA interference, the gene expression will be reduced and then the pathway will not be completed and then the insect will be albino. The insect will not have the color. So there's three ways that you're talking about um, using this technology uh, to affect the Asian citrus psyllid. Talk about the different ways you're looking at this. We can use the RNAi uh, in targeting several things which in the end can avoid the transmission from plant to plant. Uh, first one is the uh, interaction with the bacteria. It's very known that the bacteria that uh, transmits by insect vector from tree to another tree, the bacteria interact very specifically with some proteins in the insects. So if we use the RNA, RNA interference to reduce the expression of these uh, proteins, let's say receptors, then the bacteria cannot bind to these proteins. So the bacteria will not recognize the insect and then we will not have a transmission. That's the first uh, one. Second, the transmission happens because the insect fly. So if we target the flight ability by the insect by using RNAi, for example, targeting genes implicated in the development of wings. And in this case, we'll uh, apply or we'll uh, use the RNAi for the nymph. So when the adult uh, emerged, the adult will have abnormal wings, malformed wings, and the adult cannot fly from the infected tree to another tree to inoculate the bacteria. So like that, we can also prevent the transmission. The third part is using uh, the RNAi to break the insecticide resistance. And here we can target some detoxification enzymes inside the insect that the insect uses enzymes to resist the insecticide. 
So in this in this case, we can reduce the resistance, increase the susceptibility to the insecticides, and in this case, we'll have double strategy using the insecticide and the biotechnological approach, which is increase the susceptibility. In this case, we'll have a double effect, and we can reduce the amount of of uh, pesticides, and we'll have more efficient uh, application. These are the three ways we can actually uh, target the insect in order to block the transmission to a new planting or to uh, healthy trees. Uh, that last one, I mean, looking outside of this issue, that last one, um, you know, trying to limit resistance and then also, you know, increasing the efficacy of the product, that sounds amazing. Yeah, and uh, it's very interestingly that that's actually the most effective uh, gene candidate we tested. So we tested many genes in so many things, and some of the genes in the detoxification enzymes, including P450, the cytochromes, including other detoxification enzymes in the insect, usually we have the uh, effect um, much better. I mean, it's really affect the insect uh, better than the other candidates. And I think this is the way to go. It's, it's more realistic to combine the biotechnology techniques with traditional technique, at least as a first step before we go completely for biotechnology or new, new strategies. Definitely. That's exciting. The, the first one you talked about, uh, um, you know, silencing the, the way it interacts with the bacteria, uh, you basically, you know, turn the ACP from a vector to a non-vector is what you're talking about. Uh, yes. Let me explain that a little bit. So, supposedly we have healthy insects. Insects doesn't have the bacteria, but we target these proteins, the receptors, by RNAi. So the insect doesn't have uh, uh, or have reduced amount of these receptors. When the healthy insect feed an infected tree and they try to inoculate, to uh, acquire the bacteria, the bacteria need to recognize the host, the insect host. And this recognition, it's actually happens through these protein receptors. So these protein receptors are very minor. It's very low amount. In this case, the bacteria will not be able to establish the infection inside the insect. The bacteria will just go away and go through the gut and secrete it by, with the honeydew, and the, the insect will not have the bacteria in order to transmit for to another tree. Very interesting. I, I assume that the way that you deliver these RNAIs that, that's going to be the hard part, right? I mean, it's pretty complicated on the delivery system here. Absolutely. You, you're absolutely right. Let me tell you that there are three stages in order to have a product. First stage inside the lab. And in this case, we deal with the insect directly by topical feeding or topical application or let the insect feed through artificial dye, and then we can add the double-stranded RNA in order to do the RNA. But here we can just do screening. Which genes really affect the transmission or which genes really affect the survival of the insect and so on, or cause abnormal or malformed wings? That's the first stage. Second stage, we just try to go 
further in order to be near of having a product. In this case, we go to the greenhouse. And we do little, very controlled experiments with small trees, let's say one year tree. Here actually the most difficult part is to do some experiments in the field and with uh, fruiting and existing trees. And here actually it is very difficult. So many factors, so many factors. There are the winds, there are the raining, there are the, uh, many, many factors. So the delivery here, it's a whole question. It's a new question, how we can deliver. The delivery, there are several methods to deliver. The double-stranded RNA is the product we need to deliver inside the tree in order to be acquired by the insect or spray the tree and the insect can acquire it uh, from the leaves. And here is actually it's very difficult because let's say spray or foliar, we will have a lot of degradation of this molecule. If we say uh, uh, injection, and this is actually what I think it will really work, and I have some trial, some uh, successful trial, by the way, we can inject, trunk inject the tree, just like we do with the antibiotic. It's not only, uh, it's really uh, delivered to the uh, floin and the insect will uh, get the double send RNA. No, it's not only that. It's also very good for the environment because there are always some cross uh, activity with some other insects or or, or um, some other uh, things in the in the environment. But the injection we just limit to the tree inside the tree, and the insects need to get this double strand RNA from the tree from inside the tree. So there are no contamination outside with the double-stranded RNA. That's one method. And a second method which we are working in, and actually there are some groups have a lot of fun to work uh, on that, is to deliver the double-stranded RNA by laser. And simply to uh, treat the uh, leaves in the tree with some uh, laser rays to make some, uh, let's say, uh, uh, remove part of the cuticle. You know, the cuticle covers the leaves and citrus has a very thick uh, cuticle. Just to remove some cuticle and then with the foliar, the double standard RNA can get inside the plant and then later on the insect can get it. But that's another another way. And the third way, as I mentioned, is the foliar, but the foliar will have a lot of environmental factors. Uh, what if, if if there are a lot of raining, so the, the tree will be washed up from the double-stranded RNA? Uh, many things. And, and in addition to the contamination, which we don't want that. It's exactly like the antibiotic. I'm against using the antibiotic as a foliar uh, application. Inject, trunk injection is much safer for the environment and also much uh, effective because we just deliver the right, uh, product to the bacteria inside the plant. Yeah, sounds like it kind of contained, you don't get any accidental exposure that way. And then before we end here, uh, the last thing I wanted to point out was um, RNAi, I mean, we use this in other, we use this very successfully in other areas. I mean, this is, this is something that, uh, you know, it, it's not, it's not necessarily uh, a new thing. 
it we've successfully used this in other applications. So that that bodes well for this project. Absolutely. Uh, actually, there are many applications in other uh, uh, agriculture systems than the citrus. Uh, we just try to uh, understand uh, or to adapt the uh, system uh, with uh, uh, Florida in, 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 in citrus. We try to uh, study and figure out what all the factors we need to keep in mind in order to have effective delivery and effective RNAi to the, to the insect. And the third thing is the insect itself. The other systems mainly is aphid. So for salad, uh, it's uh, it's not that hard, especially the salad. It's it's also hemiptera and very near of the of the aphid and also feed in the flowing just like aphid. So we can learn a lot of lessons from the successful treatment with RNAi for aphid. But we need to adapt that to citrus and to our environment here in Florida. Very exciting research. Associate Professor of Plant Pathology, Dr. Nabil Kilini, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for this opportunity. We're now going to head over to some research on water and nutrient management for citrus trees, uh, talking with Assistant Professor of Citrus Water and Nutrient Management, Davy Kadiampakani. Uh, Dr. Kadiampakani, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. We're going to g- touch base on some of your work and some of the stuff you guys are looking at. Um, first of all, we'll start with the water because I know there's a, a little bit of an update there. You guys want to field test something that you're seeing in the lab, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, we are seeing some interesting results in the greenhouse where we are seeing that either backing off on irrigation for trees that have uh, citrus greening is kind of detrimental. You limit a little bit of the uh, root growth, you limit canopy size if you back off on the irrigation. And if you use deficit irrigation for trees that have uh, HLB, you don't help those trees. You you literally limit the production and the growth aspect. So we have been doing this for over one and a half years in the greenhouse and would still like to go to the field and modify those kinds of treatments we are assessing in the greenhouse because sometimes we see a reverse of what we have seen in the greenhouse. Yeah, so very interesting results that we see that uh, those trees in the greenhouse if you compare healthy trees and trees that are affected by citrus greening, later you see a big detrimental response in the, in the trees that are affected by citrus greening. And we see so much stress if you withhold the water. So you really need to keep the water at, at optimal levels all the time for our trees that are affected by citrus greening. Yes, that's interesting. So what's the idea there by deficit irrigation is uh, to, to kind of limit the root growth there? Why, why, why would people do that? So we were speculating that since most of the trees that are HOB positive tended to lose roots and they tend to lose most of the leaves to defoliation, we thought maybe those trees would not require more water, which sounds logical. But apparently, we learned that uh, they don't really need less water. They also need water just as healthy trees. But uh, as you said, uh, it doesn't make sense to withhold the water because the trees are already going through so much stress. So essentially, it would be wise to just maintain the irrigation the normal way. But if you don't see, have any HOB symptoms in the growth, then that would be fine to save water for any future purposes. 
that will be like in specific parts of the year where the trees, for example, are receiving enormous water from rain. You don't need to worry about irrigation that much. You just irrigate to supplement the shortfall. And also there are parts of the year when the trees are blooming. Maybe those times when trees are blooming, they don't need to be water stressed. So you need to irrigate at optimal level. But where you realize trees don't need much water, then that's the time you can back off on your irrigation. So there are ways that you can still save water for future purposes and then make sure you still keep the trees in production and, and not um, compromising yield and canopy uh, growth. Definitely makes sense. And it's, it's good to have some data behind that to make sure that we are doing the right thing. So that definitely makes sense. The other project you guys are working on, uh, it's a, you're almost four years on nutrient management uh, research. And one of the ones that you're looking at, uh, it was very interesting when you're talking about it, was micronutrients. Uh, micronutrients, uh, specifically three of them, um, it's looking like over using, using a, a higher rate on those is actually helping out a little bit. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Very fascinating results. Because in the past, all the literature we've looked at from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all we learned was that you have to stick with uh, some recommendations. For example, for, for zinc, then you have to stick with about five pounds of metallic zinc per acre. And for, uh, for um, manganese, almost the same amount. And then for boron, then you have to stick with about a pound of metallic boron per acre. But now what we are learning, which is fascinating, what we are learning is that uh, these micronutrients, for now, for HLB-affected trees, if you give them a little bit of a bump, just doubling those rates or dropping those rates or trebling those rates doesn't seem to limit production, doesn't seem to bring in any any uh, toxicities in the trees. You don't see any detrimental effects on the trees. Actually, you see better canopies, you see better root growth. You know, with HOB, root growth is limited. But now, when you, you increase the rate by two times, three times, or four times for these micronutrients, you really see better root growth, uh, better root regeneration, less root dieback, very good traits on the below ground. So that means the tree is able to support itself in terms of uptake of water and uptake of nutrients. And then you also see bump in yield. So we have seen, you know, increments in yield by 15 to 30% over every year we've been doing this experiment. So very interesting. And we have not done, we have done all, about four to six journal publications now in hot science, uh, in the agronomy, and we have also published in Sciencia Horticulturae and uh, in the, um, another journal called Agriculture. But we would love now to go ahead and prepare uh, a bulletin for the extension so that our growers have access to these recent findings because very, they're very useful, very fascinating, and we highlight the rates in the, in the discussions of those papers to, to emphasize that growers can, can, can test some of those rates and see if they, that helps them keep their uh, growth in production. Yeah, with that percentage uh, yield increase that you're talking about, I think growers would be interested in that. And, you know, fruit drop's always concerned. Does this help with less fruit drop at all? Exactly. Th that's another aspect. Uh, what we have learned when we started uh, this project in the year one, we, we saw a lot of fruit on the ground. Unfortunately, at that time, I didn't see the need for counting the fruit on the ground. I thought it was not necessary. 
But eventually, we should have been documenting all that. You see, what's um, the portion of fruit that's on the ground every year? But we never did because when we started, I think it coincided with Irma, Hurricane Irma that came across the state in 2017. So I thought, oh my God, I should have done that. And that way we could have captured any changes in the uh, fruit that went on the ground because of either fruit drop or any hurricane. Yeah, but what we have noticed is that when we increase the micronutrient levels beyond the current recommendation, whether it's two times or three times or four times, end of those rates, we have seen a big decline in fruit drop. Actually, in most cases, very negligible. You see fruit going on the ground, and when you look at the, the fruit that fell down, it's maybe because of maybe very high water levels, maybe there were just some uh, strong winds around, so we find maybe one or two fruits, but we don't see any alarming uh, fruit drop rates. So that's encouraging. Definitely. Very encouraging. Uh, the other rates that you were looking at was nitrogen rates. Um, it's been kind of uh, uh, more of a common practice to increase some of those nitrogen rates. Um, and, you know, that costs money. You you guys looked at this and said it actually doesn't help and growers can probably save those applications. Oh, yeah, that, that's very correct. Uh, we had, what we did was that we realized that just over 10 years ago, when we started uh, transitioning from mostly uh, the, uh, the traditional planting of 150 trees to the acre to dense plantings where growers now started moving to somewhere above 290 or 300 or 360, 400, or even 500 trees to the acre and above, we realized that, oh, maybe growers might wish to use higher rates of nitrogen to keep up with dense plantings. Maybe we need higher levels of nitrogen. That was our hypothesis, that if we try higher levels of nitrogen, then maybe that's going to help our growers uh, keep trees in production. So what we did was that we had different uh, planting configurations. So uh, higher levels of nitrogen, including like, say, like my groves, we had about 450 trees to the acre. Another block was about 550 trees to the acre. The other one was about 220 trees to the acre. And another block was about uh, just 500 plus trees to the acre. And then we did these trials in uh, central Florida, around Lake Alfred, uh, so in the central reach. And then we had another block in southwest Florida uh, where we were collaborating with Dr. Kelly Morgan. And one thing we saw, so the only difference was that the trees had varying ages. So on the ridge, we had about six to eight-year-old trees. And then in the southwest, they had about 12 to 14-year-old trees. And, and what we learned was when we were applying the different levels of uh, nitrogen, for example, 150 pounds of nitrogen, and then about 200 pounds of nitrogen, and then 250 pounds of nitrogen, to the acre, what we learned was that it's not beneficial at all to put about 250 pounds of nitrogen to the acre because that improves the canopy, but at the detriment of yield. That's what we have learned. And what we have noticed is that 150 pounds of nitrogen to the acre and 200 pounds of nitrogen to the acre were beneficial. Uh, we, we tended to see high yields at those two levels. So. For now, that's what we are learning, and we want to learn more because we did use high, uh, lower rates of nitrogen or 
even higher rates on average than beyond 250 pounds or lower rates below 150 pounds on average per acre. Yeah, but within that patch of 150 to 200 uh, pounds on average per acre, we saw good response in yield and good response in uh, kind of a size. But that occurred at specific combinations of calcium and magnesium. Uh, because where we use calcium and magnesium in combination, because we had ordered those also, where we, there were some treatments where we, we, we withheld calcium, and then in other cases we withheld magnesium, but, but in other cases we, we put calcium and magnesium at the same time. So what we realized that we have to maintain the calcium and magnesium at the same level, while we, we, we use those levels of between 150 to 200 uh, pounds of uh, nitrogen per acre. Uh, and then when we do so, while we keep calcium and magnesium at the current recommendation, then we, we, we got better yield, we got better canopy size, we got better juice quality, we got uh, better root growth, we, we, we got better uh, response also in terms of the dense canopies. Because sometimes we just want to have a canopy that can keep and retain fruit on the, on the, on the tree. That was something that we also found fascinating. So we are, we are planning also to document that. We have already done journal articles, but now we are trying to get that into some narrative we can put in the extension bulletins. I've been talking about some of this in uh, extension talks and all that, but I want to document this and show some graphs and some data so growers can really see what we are talking about and see the rates we are talking about so that they, they can try that in their field and see if that works also as we have seen. If they don't see the, the, the results as we are seeing, then we might have to tweak that to see if we get something different and change the recipe of the nutrients and see if we can come up with something that's more more usable for growers. Yeah, no, definitely. That that that's makes sense. I mean, I, I guess the logical thought there would be more trees per acre so you increase your nitrogen. But yeah, no, definitely good information that you're coming out with where it doesn't actually help. And it's all about that that yield number, which is important. Davey, before we, we finish up here, uh, reflective mulch is something that we've talked about uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I haven't heard much about it. You guys are still doing some research on that, right? Exactly. Uh, that, that, that's something that we've been doing now for about just over two years. Uh, the work started like over six years ago. Most of the work started with the entomologists. The entomologists took the lead because they were trying to, to, to treat the agent citrus to make sure that it can't you know, fly over to trees to infect. The, the pathogen that causes citrus green. But eventually, wh while they were using that for controlling the agent citrus psyllid that transmits the pathogen for citrus greening, we have learned also that it results in better water storage. And that has been a very touching aspect. So what we have been doing, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the lead entomologist who started the project that time was uh, late few Stanley, and after he, uh, he passed on, uh, daughter uh, Kureshi uh, took over the project. So he asked me to stay, stay, stay on the project. So we, we have had three sites. So we have a, a site in Vero Beach in the Southwest Florida and also on the Central Ridge. And what we have seen, which is quite fascinating, is that uh, uh, we, we have been looking at different modes of uh, controlling the agent citrus. But in terms of the water storage, which is something that has touched me, we have seen that when you use the mulch, we tend to have better water storage. You limit evaporation by 30 to 40%. So that, that's already 
lowering the amount of water losses, and then you have between 20 to 45 percent uh, faster tree growth on the on the march than without the march. Something that was something that I, I didn't expect to see, but that's what we was just observed in this way we've been taking this measurement. So there have been benefits in terms of canopy growth. There have been benefits in terms of water storage. And obviously, there are also benefits in terms of delivery of nutrients because we have been using mostly fertigation. So most of the nutrients are sticking in the root zone and the water is sticking in the root zone. And then the uptake is enormous. A lot of high nutrient uptake. When we look at leaf nutrient values over time, every quarter, very high nutrient uptake, which is very fascinating as well. Yeah, so it seems to be encouraging that for young trees, I think it's worth it uh, trying to use the mulch because one, you are, you, you, are, you are cutting down the infection rate from greening. You are slowing that down because there's no seed pressure because of the infected mulch. And then you are making full use of the amount of water you're putting in and the amount of nutrients you're putting in and then the amount of uh, growth that we're achieving, and eventually that might also result in early production. So I've seen some trees already start blossoming that are just less than two years old or thereabouts. So that means that within three years, we'll be getting our first harvest for sure. And that should be something that's worth trying by our growers and even investing in. I've seen a couple of growers already investing in that, but it's good that we are having all these other data sets to back up. Besides controlling agency transferring, we are also achieving better water saving because that can result in reduced amounts of water applied per acre if they use the march compared to no march. That's one thing that I'm hoping that we'll end up concluding at the end of the study. It's a three-year study, so we're already in a two-year patch right now. So I think at three years, we should have all those data sets required to, to justify that indeed this is where we need to go in terms of water savings, better use, uh, better protection of our trees, and also better production. That's exciting. I, I know it's important to look at all of the benefits of some of these new practices, and that, that's what you're doing there with the reflective mulch. Uh, again, Assistant Professor of Citrus Water and Nutrient Management, Davey Kadiampakani, thank you so much for your time. All right, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us on this episode of the All In for Citrus podcast. Remember to send it to a friend and subscribe. We'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.